again, we are responsible for our families, and we just thank you for the how these men have put in time to raise kids. And whether the kids are at home or are they away from home, there's been a whole lot of time and training and effort put into having kids be kids and grow into men that are productive in society and bring glory and honor to the Savior. So we thank you for this group here today. We pray that men would have a refreshing day with their families. We also are grateful for uh, Jenny that she's able to help Kevin move to a different, different place, and it's his first home, so we are just grateful that he can do that. And may Fred and Kevin have a really good time today as father and son, and these seems that these type of events happen less and less over time. Uh, busyness seems to overtake us, so when these, these times happen, they are precious. Father, we pray for John Forbes and Kathy and for John's brother, Glenn, and we have brought them before the throne of grace on many weeks, and we will continue to do this, and we pray that you would be with their family, that you would give them the peace that passes all understanding, that you would guard their hearts and their minds in Christ Jesus. Father, that you would give them a sweetness in the journey in spite of what the journey looks like. We also pray for, for Brian Lane and for his son, or for Brian and for Mike, his dad. We just pray for that family as they have got pressures that are continued to mount each week. And for Pauline, as she is ill, that we just ask that you would give that family your grace as well. Father, we, we see things like the Forbes family and the Lane family, and at times we are at a loss to what to pray for. But that is your Holy Spirit uh, tells us that you are before the throne and that you intercede with groans that, are, uh, that cannot be put into words. So, Father, we thank you that we have an intercessor before the throne, even when we fail to be able to pray as we ought uh, amongst ourselves. We ask for traveling mercies for Fred and Jenny as they're going to be gone for the next couple weeks. We ask that you would allow them to have sweet, a sweet time and a relaxing time. And for Money Mayberry, as her health is deteriorating, we pray for her as well, that you would watch over her, that you would guide her, that you would give her exactly what she stands in need of. And Father, it's brought, been brought to our attention that Jeff Ellers, and maybe some here know this individual and some don't, but he, he is, he is uh, in, his health is compromised, and it looks from the news that we've got that he will not survive. So we ask that you would be near Jeff, that uh, we, I, I ask that he would be a believer, and that this would have an impact on his family for the good of your kingdom. We also pray for the family of Karen DeRyder and that's got to be a tough situation when uh, the remaining spouse has mental issues and doesn't know that his wife is gone. And There's care for the family to extend and the estate to handle. And There's a lot of issues, and this is just turbulent waters on how to navigate all this. So we ask that you give wisdom to that family as well, that they'd be able to navigate through this. And it seems trite, but for, for Dawn and the family and the, the floor that they want to get fixed, it's just so nice to have a project done and be able to get back into the house and have things turn to a bit of normalcy again. So we pray that this week that that could happen, that they'd be able to get their, their stuff done in their house and they'd be able to move back in. So, Father, we, we, we recognize from human perspective that some of these are what we would call important prayers and some of these are, are less so. But, Father, we are amazed that you love to hear the prayers of your children. So we do that. We bring these before you, and we ask that you would intercede on our behalf. 
And Father, we trust that you will do this because you are a trusting God and your track record is one that is a total trust. And we thank you for that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you turn in your Bibles, we're going to be having uh, the third of three messages on, you could call it contentment or peace or satisfaction. And I thought if I'd reach and, reach and do a, a fourth one, then maybe there'd be some discontent in the congregation. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so I thought three would be enough. And I'm going to try and, and give some, some biblical advice and some practical advice. And the passage that I'm going to be reading from, if you want to kind of flip there, is Philippians 4. And we're going to be reading that here in a little bit. Uh, there was once a Gallup poll that was taken. And the people were asked, what elements need to be present in your life to have peace of mind? Or another way to put it, what elements need to be in your life for you to believe that you can have a successful life? And the Gallup poll people put like 20 or 30 different items in front of the person that's going to answer. So they looked at all these items, 20, 30 items, and then they would say which ones they thought were necessary for a successful life. Well, when they did this, the first one to come, came in number one, was good health, which is no surprise. If you don't have good health, it's tough to do much of anything. Number two was an enjoyable job. Number three, a happy family. Fourth was a good education. Fifth was peace of mind. Hmm. Peace of mind and six were good friends. And materialistic factors like a really fancy home or a luxury car, more money, uh, those were way down the list. Those, those didn't surface very close to the top. Uh, but for the purposes of this particular message, I found that peace of mind was pretty interesting because it seems that that is something that is desired by man is if I said, would you like to have peace in your life? I can't believe somebody would say no, which is another way of saying everybody wants peace in their life. And I'm going to illustrate to you that God wants peace in your life. In fact, I can give you just a progression of the scripture verses that talk about God wanting peace in your life. You can see Isaiah is prophesying the coming savior. He's not even here yet. And Isaiah says, that the coming Savior would be called the Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Now, I've heard that verse a lot of times. And when I was going over this passage, it says, and the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And I thought, they inserted that word peace in there because I always thought it was, and the increase of his government, there would be no end. So I look it up. So it's there. Increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And then you see when uh, Jesus, his imminent birth was announced, the angel said, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill towards men. When Jesus was talking to his disciples and he, he's done his whole ministry and he's kind of preparing them and he's going to be leaving, he says in John 14, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. So we see the progression before he was even on this earth, Isaiah prophesied, and then 
imminent right before he was born. They said there's going to be peace. At the end of Jesus' ministry, he says there's going to be peace. And then we look at the final one. After Jesus has left this earth, and we have a host of uh, New Testament passages, Galatians 5, we're all very familiar with that. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. So peace is throughout the ministry of Jesus. So it would be fair to say, if man wants peace, and God wants peace, we all want peace, why don't we have it? Why is there so much uh, lack of peace in the world? Well, here's the deal. The problem with people is we want peace on our terms. In other words, if I have an issue with someone, we can have peace right after I get revenge. We will get along just great. Or you can say, we're going to have peace in this nation just as soon as my political party takes office. The only problem is, it seems that there's never peace with any of the political parties. It seems that there's peace, there, there is no peace. It seems like there's upheaval all the time. And many will experience peace only, they think, when things go their way. And when they go their way, we'll have peace. Sal and I oftentimes like to find a historical, um, move, their, epi their episodes, episodic events, and we'll go on there. And they, we're, we're right now we're watching one called the Medici, and they were a very prominent family in, in Europe, and they had a lot of money. And they, as you might imagine, there was one rich family, the Medici, and then there's another rich family over here, and they're constantly clashing. They're constantly clashing, and so the one side is, is begging for peace. Can't we have peace between us? Can't we have peace? And the other side would say, sure, as long as we can get all the money, we're going to have peace. Yep, that's usually how it goes. As long as I get my way, we're going to have peace. <clears throat> there is so much conflict in this world, but James writes, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. Now, the peace that God offers this world is different than what the world pursues. Jesus says, peace I leave with you, and my peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. So the, the peace that God gives is not that we have something other than we have Jesus Christ, his Holy Spirit inside of us. And when we have the Holy Spirit inside of us, how we act should be different. And I want to go through some, some various points, and I have an outline on the back, and that might be helpful. Uh, three points to have God's peace. Before I do that, one man said this. It's just kind of an introduction. Peace is not the absence of trouble. Peace is the presence of God in our life. That makes all the difference. So the first one, three points to have God's peace. I must live by his priorities. And I'm going to read this passage in Philippians. And I'm going to start at verse 2. 
and it reads as follows. I plead with Yudia, and I plead with Sintika to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clements and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Verse 4. <clears throat> rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by, your, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is holy, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, that is, for the most part, a very familiar verse. It tells you stuff, you know, this, this whole... Uh, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and supplication. We're familiar with that. We're familiar with what, what we are to have our minds dwell on. We're all very familiar with that. In fact, it says in verse 9 and 7, yeah, 9 and 7, it says, verse 7 says, And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And that the last part of verse 9 says, And the God of peace will be with you. Now, we focus on that, but... I think those latter verses were written because of the former verses, which until today I had skipped over. The former verses are in verse 2. I plead with Odia and I plead with Sentika to agree with each other in the Lord. Well, what does that what does that mean by in the Lord? It means I must live by his priorities. Now, these two women, it seems, were doing this. They were, they were clashing. They were at odds, and we don't know what they were at odds about, but they were at odds, and this would be one of these deals where one would sit over there, and one would sit over here, and we don't talk. And they were ticked about something, and so they had a clash and it says, you need to agree with each other in the Lord. And if you live by the priorities of God, it's, it's what does God want, not what do I want. Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, not my will, but yours. And this needs to be on God's terms, not my terms. And apparently this clash, these sparks, had reached Paul, and Paul now writes on it. He says, I don't know how else to say this, but you need to knock it off. Okay? You need to be in the Lord and have the priorities of the Lord. And I think we can use this church as an example, and I can guarantee you I can use other churches that I have been at that have, have clashes. They've had this, and it's not attractive. And we don't have to use this church. We can probably go through virtually every church in this city that one time or another has had a clash where somebody is really ticked off and there are sparks. And it is harmful to the kingdom of God. We can all agree on that. It is harmful that it all comes back to if I live by God's priorities, then you ask, what does God want, 
not what do I want. Because what we want is real simple. I want my way. If I get my way, life is good. That may not be what God wants. It goes on. <clears throat> the second one, include God in all that we do. Include God in all that we do. In verses uh, 5 through 7, Paul writes, Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. We are to pray about it, okay? Not just a, it, it's one of those Christianese things to do that if something happens, say, well, we should pray about it. No, you're really supposed to pray about it. And some have said, why don't people pray about it? And the, 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 the offer has been made, well, maybe they think that God is busy. Well, if somebody has been a Christian for more than five minutes, they should know that, no, God is not busy. Or they may say, well, maybe they don't want to bother God. He, he's busy doing something else, or he just doesn't want to be bothered. Well, if you've been a Christian for 10 minutes, you know that that's not true either. What I think a lot of the case is, is they prefer to handle it themselves. So they don't pray about it. Let's just handle it myself. And it's kind of like this. It's kind of like handing the, handling the problems like this mountaineer did. He fell off a cliff, and as he tumbled down into the huge canyon, he grabbed hold of a branch of a small tree, and he shouted, Help! Is there anyone up there? Well, there was a deep, majestic voice. From the sky echoed through the canyon. He says, I will help you, my son, but first you must have faith and trust me. He says, all right, all right. I trust you, answered the man. And the voice replied, then let go of the branch. There was a long pause. And then the voice shouted again, is there anyone else up there? <laughs> and that's kind of us, is we'll have something that, that we need to pray about, but we want it our way. And we know that God, he, he, says, he says whatever he says in here, and we go, yeah, we're pretty familiar with that, but is there any other way that we can do this so that I can still get my way? And still get my way, because that is, that is the driving force here. The third one, remember what God has done before. Scripture, from cover to cover, shows God is faithful, and he's worthy of our trust. From cover to cover, it shows that God is faithful. And as many of you know, I'm a, I'm a biblical counselor, and certainly I don't do that full-time by any means, but I've done it, I don't know, I suppose it's 15 years now. And, and the things that kind of show up at your door over time is only limited by your imagination. And I've done a lot of premarital counseling, and, and I have told counselees before, I said, this, this is generally what I see in your relationship. For example, I'll say, I'll say, you guys are really, really good at working. You got this work thing down really well. But you don't have this play thing down very well. You, you guys don't play together. You don't go walk on the beach. You don't go take a bike ride. You don't go out to eat. You don't go for a walk. You have this work thing down really, really good. But you don't have this play thing down. And if you don't get that solved just a little bit, 
Personally, I think in six months, you're going to be what I call affectionately, you're going to be in the tank. And you're going to drift apart, and you're, you're, not going to, you're just not going to know each other like you should know each other in a marriage relationship. And actually, I've had some people, they, they've taken my word for it, and they, they've tried to change that, and they know they have a tendency to be a workaholic, and they don't play at all. And I've had others that have just blew it off. And a year later, they give me a call, and their marriage is a wreck. It's just a wreck. And I go, ah. Uh, I don't mean to put salt in the wound, but did we not talk about this back over there? And, and did you just go your own way, and here we are. So what do you want me to do? Because I told you a long time ago that this was a danger, and I kind of raised the red flag, and it appears you just kind of blew that off, and here we are. So what do you want from me? And I kind of throw the ball back in their court so we can have a little discussion about this. <clears throat> more often than once and more often than twice, as when people come to me, I give them what I believe is biblical advice. It isn't necessarily my advice. It's biblical advice, and they blow it off. They don't really blow it off. They thank you profusely. They say it's wonderful and it's all good. But the end result is they don't do it. Okay, they can be as kind as can be about the whole deal, but the bottom line is they don't do it. So I'm going, what do you expect? The Bible says this is how we should live, and you decide to eloquently and, and artfully dodge that. What do you expect? Things are going to deteriorate. And then they come back to me sometime later, and I go, yeah, that's what I expected. And if you don't change now, you think things are as bad as they can get. They can get a lot worse. So what do you want to do? Anyway, the point is, remember what God has done before. God has lavished blessings on the people of Israel. He has lavished blessings on us. But there are times when the people turned against him and his compassion and his grace and his mercy will only extend so long and things are then going to deteriorate. <clears throat> this is kind of a, I'm going to make a little bit of a transition here, but this is, this is one of those focal points in a sermon regarding, what do you call it, satisfaction or peace or contentment. It's what you look at that will determine how you handle life's problems. It's what you look at that will determine how you handle life's problems. And I am not going to make a big deal out of Paul because we have talked about Paul for weeks and weeks and weeks. But I'm going to give like a 20-second little summary. We all know that Paul wrote things that, for example, he wrote, Rejoice in the Lord! Always, I say again, rejoice, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Hold that, hold that thought. In the life of Paul, he was given 40 lashes less one five times. He was beaten three times with rods, stoned once, shipwrecked three times, and in danger from, it went on and on and on. He was in danger from everybody. Okay, yet he can say, if God is, is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Paul kept his eyes 
on the Savior. My comment when I started is what you look at that will determine how you handle life's problems. And if you're focused on the Savior, it's going to make all the difference in the world. So I want to I want to kind of slowly wind this down by giving you some practical tips for contentment. And I could have given you a whole bunch, but I thought I would just kind of limit it to four. And if you can master these four, you'd be well on your, well on your way to contentment. And the, fir the first one is practice gratitude. Practice gratitude. It is... It is taking a step back and looking at how much good there is in your life. And gratitude affirms the fact that there is a lot of good in your life. We will always be faced with challenges. And there is no limit to what you do not have. There's no limit to what every one of us do not have. And if we focus on that, we are going to be discontent or dissatisfied. But when we look at our lives with the focus of what is right and true, according to the passage, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, and whatever is right, and goes on, when we focus on what is true and right, we will experience gratitude. And another thing, gratitude, like any other attitude, can be cultivated. You can cultivate it, and you can look at life through a prism of gratitude, or you can look at life through a prism of what you lack, and you will always lack something. The second one is, stop comparing yourself to others. <coughs> For younger people especially, <clears throat> social media can just be so destructive. When you say, stop, when I say, stop comparing yourself to others, comparison is the thief of joy. Comparison is the thief of joy. You can get a brand new car, a brand new house, a brand new outfit, you fill in the blank, you get something brand new, and you look at somebody else and you go, oh, well, theirs is nicer than mine. You had gratitude. You had joy, but you compare yourself with other one. Comparison is the thief of joy every time. Unless, of course, you're looking at somebody who's, who's lower than you, but we don't do that very often. One of the um, prime ways that you can have your joy stolen is go on social media. <clears throat> Instagram, don't, I don't go there. Snapchat, I don't go there either. Facebook, as little as possible. But nevertheless, if you go on there, those medias are for nothing except to encourage an environment of comparison. Is you got Harry that just bought a car, and he's got the picture of his car, and he says how wonderful his car is, and all of you bums out there, you don't have a new car, and you're looking at this comparison. Or you can have Mary that, that shows her picture when she went out dancing or she went out partying with a boyfriend, and she sends that picture on there, and too bad for all you girls that are sitting home on Saturday night, and you're not going anywhere. And you go, hmm, boy, I sure wish I could be Mary. It's all comparison. It's all putting on there the stuff that I have, the stuff that's going on. It's not solely that, but it is a lot that. <clears throat> so 
Comparing yourself to others is sure to bring you discontent. But here's the thing. Here's the thing about comparing yourself to others is we always compare the worst in ourselves to the assumed best in somebody else. We don't, we don't know if our assumptions are right. We don't know if that other person is doing as well as we think they are. Their life, I can assure you, is not as perfect as your mind makes them out to be. They can have the perfect life, the perfect marriage, the perfect kids. Guess what? They're not perfect. It's just that you think they are, or that is how they portray themselves. So when we compare ourselves, we are comparing the worst in us to the perceived best in others. Third one, help others. By helping others, it pushes our problems and our discontent to the side. And by helping others, it cultivates gratitude. It absolutely cultivates gratitude. Now, in her wisdom, my wife, when our kids were small and they would get on a rampage of complaining about something or they didn't like this or they didn't like that, she loaded them up, I believe he did, loaded them up and took them to the rest home. And they could be of service to somebody in the rest home and see just how well you have it compared to somebody else and not moan and groan about what you have at home because when you start to help others, you realize just how well you have, you have it. I made a comment to Sal the other day. This is how my mind works. It's very odd, I know. It's very odd. But I'm sitting there, and I said, Sal, just tell me. And I would ask you the same type of question. Sal, tell me. If you had to choose one, which would you choose? The loss of your sight or be paralyzed from the neck down? Which would you choose? I'm sorry? I know it's very odd. <laughs> it's very odd. And my point is how blessed we are to have both. That's my point is I go, I, I don't want to give up either one because both are so precious. And when you sit and you lean back and you go, and not everybody has those, I go, how blessed am I that I have these functions. And the final one, be content with what you have, not with who you are. We can always improve ourselves. We can always learn more. We can always be more grateful. We can always bring more praise and honor to our Savior. But be content with what you have. Stop filling your emotions with stuff. I made the comment here a couple weeks ago, contentment is not having all you want. It is wanting only what you have. That is contentment. And our, our society has been uh, brainwashed into thinking if you are discontent or you have lack of peace or satisfaction, go shopping and that will fix it. You just need to get something. But you will never shop your way to happiness, ever. Uh, when I was working at another company in the capacity of a, of a chaplain, it came to my attention, and I don't even know if that individual is working there anymore. It came to my attention, and you probably have heard of worst case scenarios. This is the worst I've ever heard, is this particular person 
had $50,000 in credit cards, credit card bills. Now, in my world, that's like off the charts. Now, maybe somebody, you know somebody that has 100 or 150. Good for you. I know a person that had 50, and I was just astonished that they would have this much. And I went up to him and I said, <clears throat> you know, I don't know how to tell you this, but I'm going to say something very un-American to you. You can't afford what you have. You need to sell it and reduce what you have and reduce your debt. He says, well, I'm going to take a loss on it. I says, you're taking more of a loss by paying the kind of interest you're paying, which was astronomical. So we could go down that financial road, and that's not my intent. But my point is, be content with what you have. You're not going to buy yourself into happiness. It's not going to help. And he had all the stuff and all the toys, and he had all the bills, and he had all the pressure as well. Don't buy yourself into happiness. It's not going to work. And I want to conclude with this, and it kind of tees off on what the question that I just asked you a minute ago. Uh, there was a group of geography students, and they were studying a lot of the wonders of the world. Not only the seven wonders of the world, but they were studying a whole bunch of the different wonders of the world. And at the end of the lecture, the students were asked to list what they considered to be the present day wonders of the world. And although this group of students had some disagreement, the following got the most votes. It was not necessarily in this order, but it was the Great Pyramids of Egypt, the Taj Mahal, the Grand Canyon, the Panama Canal, the Empire State Building, St. Peter's Basilica, and the Great Wall of China. And while the teacher was gathering the votes, uh, she noted that one student, a quiet girl, she didn't say a whole lot, but this quiet girl hadn't turned in her paper yet, so she asked the girl if she was having trouble with her list. And the quiet girl replied, yeah, she goes, I am a little bit. I couldn't quite make up my mind because there were so many possibilities. The teacher says, well, tell us what you have and maybe we can help. The girl hesitated and and then she read, I think the seven wonders of the world are to touch, to taste, to see, to hear. She hesitated for a bit. And she was thinking, and she goes, to, to hope, to laugh, and to love. And the room became so quiet, it was, it was deafening. You see, it is far too easy for us to look at the exploits of men and refer to them as wonders while we look at the amazing things God has done regarding such blessings as just ordinary. They're just, everybody's got them. Life itself is wondrous, amazing, and miraculous. Being able to walk and talk and laugh and have dreams and hopes and to see and to hear and to feel and to touch. Are those not amazing? Especially when you're given the option of losing them. Then you realize just how amazing they are. And I don't know this Cynthia Ozick, but she says, we often take for granted the very things that most deserve our gratitude. I do it and I suspect you do as well. We are a blessed people, and we have all that we would ever need and more. 
and our gratitude should be apparent. We shouldn't be comparing ourselves to others. We should be helping others and be content with what we have, because frankly, we've got a lot. And that is because of the blessings of our God. He has blessed us incredibly more than what we need, and we need to be, have gratitude for that. So let's pray together as the worship team comes up. Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, when we look at what we have and just make a, a, just a little comparison worldwide of where we are, my goodness, you have given us so much. In just a few minutes here, we're going to feast on all kinds of good food, and we've never been in want. We always have more than we need, and that is a blessing from you. And we've, never, we've never had uh, clothes to wear. We, in fact, we've got so many clothes, which one do we want to wear? And for many of us, we have multiple cars. We may even have multiple homes. You have given us so much, and as a people, we need to be so grateful to you for what you've given to us. So make us a people that are unified in our love for you. And when we come to this church, we love each other because Christ loved us first. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this day. For our men, may it be a relaxing day for them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.